Yeah, when I was uh, when I was growing up, I so I have three brothers. So I grew up in a pretty uh, pretty active household. All four of us boys played multiple sports. Uh, both of my parents worked so that they could basically fund our athletic activities. And because of that, because both my parents worked, all of us played sports, we rarely had a home-cooked meal. Like, I ate a lot of fast food growing up. Like, a lot of fast food. I mean, if I weren't playing sports, it would have been very detrimental to my health. But, like, I remember my regular order, my favorite was Burger King uh, when I was in middle school. My regular order, my mom would be like, hey, do you want the regular? Like, yeah, give me the regular. It was three eight-piece chicken tenders and a large fry with Coke. And a lot of ketchup, too. It's like, Mom, make sure they give you enough ketchup this time. Um, yeah, so that's a lot. 24 chicken tenders, that was like my regular. Uh, you know, we went to, I had regulars at all. I mean, there was, when I got into high school, the local deli guy, I would call him, order my lunch, uh, getting out of high school. He knew my voice. <laughs> it's like, oh, California cheesesteak with mayo? I was like, yes. Uh, you know, I just had, you know, I, and still, I still love fast food. You just can't beat fast food. But it wasn't really until, uh, actually, you can. Um, that's the whole point of this entire, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't until really college, but mainly until I got married that I started to eat real food. You know, my wife and I, we, we cook most of our meals now, which is very different than my upbringing. And even though I do love still a cheesy gordita crunch from Taco Bell or a nice Big Mac from McDonald's, nothing beats a good home-cooked meal with real food. You know, because a Big Mac, as good as it is, it is not real food. <laughs> so we live in the city in Lancaster, and, you know, going down to Lancaster City uh, Central Market, just a, it's a world-renowned farmer's market, and going to Country Meadows Stand where they have ground beef from a local farm with grass-fed cows, then going to the Amish stand and getting locally grown lettuce, then going to the bakery stand where they make brioche buns just a couple blocks away, bringing it home, putting it on the charcoal grill. You guys are like, even though you ate, your, your mouths are watering right now, right? <laughs> Cutting up tomatoes from our own garden and then enjoying that. Nothing beats a meal like that. I mean, Especially like enjoying that with my wife as opposed to like sitting in a McDonald's parking lot hoping no one sees me. <laughs> I've been there. There's nothing, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. But the appeal of fast food is what? It's, it's more convenient and it's less expensive. That's why, that's why these businesses are booming with billions and billions and billions of dollars in industry. You know, because it's more convenient, it's less expensive. The reality is, the unfortunate reality is, I think that we have a tendency to approach Christianity in the way that we approach fast food. That we want our Jesus to be like our McDonald's. We want Jesus to be convenient, and we don't want him to cost him, to cost us too much. And, and here's the thing, as fast food may, a fast food diet may be unhealthy for your body, a fast food Jesus will be unhealthy for your soul. And in the same way that cheap and convenient food isn't actually real food, a cheap and convenient Jesus is not a real Jesus. And part of even why I'm saying that is uh, for those of you who have been here tracking through the Revelation series and biting off these huge chunks of scripture, that's not fast food Jesus, right? You're like, oh man, I'm, I've been digesting this for weeks now, <laughs> right? But in, in the grander scheme of things, what we're going to see in this passage in Philippians is that the real Jesus calls us to give up everything 
and to follow him. The real Jesus uh, does not call us into a comfortable and convenient life. The real Jesus calls us to make sacrifices in order to know him and make him known on this campus and for the rest of your lives. And, And the reality is it is going to cost you, but it'll be worth it. And so here's what I want to do tonight. We're going to see this reality played out primarily in the life of Paul as he talks to this group of Christians who are trying to figure out what it means like for them to follow Jesus. If you look at your handout, I have a, have a nice little uh, summary slash principle of what we see going on in each of these paragraphs. So if you have small enough handwriting, here's, here's the fill in the blanks, because this is going to be in all four of these paragraphs. This is the principle that we see. Though it causes more difficulty, giving people more of Jesus will bring about more joy as God gets more glory. Though it causes more difficulty, giving people more of Jesus will bring about more joy as God gets more glory. So we're going to see that in actually all four of these paragraphs in different situations. So what I'm going to do is just read a paragraph at a time. We're going to talk about it, and then we'll read the next paragraph. So let's first start with reading verses 12 through 14. So this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Philippian church. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All right, so situation number one, where we see this principle played out, is we see Paul detained. We see him detained. Notice his situation in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And you see what has happened to him. Look down at verse 14. He's been put in prison. Paul is in jail. Which, if you're familiar with Paul, you know that this happened a lot to him. He was in and out of prison all the time. Uh, And it was mainly because he and his friends would go town to town talking about this guy, Jesus. And a lot of people didn't like what they had to say about Jesus. Particularly the authorities, both the Roman authorities and the religious authorities. And uh, Philippi, this this, uh, group of Christians where they lived... Uh, they would have been completely aware of this reality because when Paul first went to Philippi and planted the church there, he got thrown in the Philippian prison initially. So they're, they're totally aware that Paul uh, habitually got thrown in prison. But notice Paul's perspective. Do you see what he says in verse 12? He says this has served to advance the gospel. Yeah, it seems that maybe the Philippians were, were concerned Uh, Oh, man, Paul's been thrown in prison again. Like, what does that mean for the gospel going forward? And he's he's easing their concerns, and he wants them to know that he may be in chains, but the gospel cannot be stopped. And actually, it's it's not even that his imprisonment is putting brakes on the gospel. His imprisonment is accelerating the gospel. It's making it go even further. Do you see how it's advancing? In this paragraph, you see two things Two ways that the gospel is advancing. Look at verse 13. He says, It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You notice the, the imperial guard. He's not talking about Star Wars. He's talking about, most likely, Caesar's elite bodyguards. 
So uh, later on, you'll actually hear that Caesar's household has heard about Jesus in the gospel. And so most likely, these are, these are like elite guards, elite military authority within the Roman government. I mean, the most powerful empire to date. And he's saying the people at the top have heard the gospel. And so uh, he, what he's saying is the gospel is getting further than we could have ever imagined. And it's because I'm suffering, not despite it. So that's one way. The second way is in verse 14. See, most, he says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So his imprisonment is giving people more boldness to preach the gospel. Which, if you think about it, that's, that's counterintuitive. Like, if, if campus security walked in here, you know, handcuffed me and shuffled me out, and they're like, this man's talking about Jesus. He's, he's going to campus security. Like, you guys are probably freaking out a little bit, right? Like, you want to be like, stand up and just start preaching the gospel at them, right? Like, legal punishment is meant to discourage the type of activity that you're getting punished for. But what Paul is showing us here is, I think, is a reality of the gospel. That when it comes to uh, sharing the gospel with people and being on mission for Jesus, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. You know, I, I experienced this a couple weeks ago at Elizabethtown College, one of the other ministries that I help out at. And there's a girl there who is the only Christian in her family. And she was sharing how and she's just tr- trying to do whatever she can to love her family well, even though they disagree with her viewpoint and perspective. And she was sharing some of the things that she's been trying and some of the, the discouragement that she's been feeling, but she just wants to keep trying harder and harder. And as she's sharing this with us, I'm sitting there feeling emboldened. Like her... Her difficulty isn't making me afraid. Her difficulty and her endurance is actually bringing courage to my own walk with the Lord. Because when it comes to the gospel, that's what we see. Courage is contagious. And so as Paul considers his own imprisonment, his his persecution, he's encouraging the Philippians that this is a good thing. That his suffering, his imprisonment is a good thing. It's because, though it causes more difficulty, giving people more of Jesus will bring about more joy as God gets more glory. He's excited about that, even though he's suffering. So that's situation number two. Look at situation, or situation number one. Now let's look at situation number two, verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So the first situation, Paul was detained, he's in prison. Here in this section, we see him uh, defamed. He's being defamed. So let's, let's look at what's going on here. At the end of that first paragraph, he was talking about these people who are preaching. In this paragraph, he breaks that group of preachers down into two different groups. Do you notice there's like a good group and a bad group? So verse 15, you see the bad group, that there's people who preach from envy and rivalry. But then the second half, others from goodwill. Those people, so the the good preachers, verse 16, they do it out of love. So that's good, preaching the gospel out of love for people and for the Lord. And then they also do it in solidarity with Paul, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Now what about the bad group? Look at what they're doing. So verse 15, envy, rivalry. 
Verse 17, they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Now, what's going on here? What's Paul talking about? First off, notice that he's not critiquing their message. He's not, he doesn't have a problem with what they're preaching, which is important because Paul came down hard on false teachers. If people were sharing things that were inaccurate about Jesus, he was quick to correct them. So his issue isn't their message. His issue is their motivation. Do you notice their motivation? It's envy. It's selfishness. It's rivalry. It's like they're preaching to boost their own reputation. They're looking to make a name for themselves, which unfortunately, there are preachers out there who consistently do this, that they're looking to make a name and make a lot of money and get a lot of fame for the message that they preach. That, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, um, it reminds me of a friend of mine in college. You may be this person or you may know someone who's a one-upper where you tell a story and the next thing that gets told is a story that tops that story. Like we had a friend who did this with every single story. It was either his story or his friend's story or his cousin's story. He was going to top your story no matter what. You kind of see that sort of competitiveness with these preachers. They're like, yeah, well, I'm going to be a better preacher than that guy. It's kind of weird, right? It's a little awkward, but that's probably kind of what's going on here. But it gets more personal for Paul. Look at verse 17. They're they're, uh, preaching not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I I mean, think about this. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And here are his brothers in the faith who are looking to make his situation worse. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but in some way, shape, or form, they they are running Paul's name through the mud and throwing him under the bus. When he is suffering for the gospel, there are other Christians who are trying to make him look even worse than he already feels. But look at Paul's perspective. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. How do you feel when someone betrays you? Like when someone, either it's a big betrayal or just someone says something mean about you behind your back. You at least feel hurt and you probably want a little bit of vengeance in that moment, right? Like I remember in middle school, middle school dance, my friend thought that I told his girlfriend to break up with him. And so he wanted vengeance. He comes and brings a stink bomb in the middle of the dance floor as if middle school dances weren't awkward enough, <laughs> smashes a stink bomb on my shoulder. The whole floor clears out and I'm standing in the middle smelling like crap. <laughs> the first thing I wanted to do once I got a clean shirt and could find him is I wanted to punch the kid in the face, right? That's how we normally feel when we feel betrayed. We want, we want you know, justice for what, the harm that's been done. Paul is being betray- betrayed. His name is being dragged through the mud and he is rejoicing. Why? Because though it causes him more difficulty, giving people more of Jesus brings about more joy as God gets more glory. He's rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed. Even if his name gets dragged through the dirt, Jesus' reputation is being held up. So that's situation number two. Let's look at situation number three, and it's going to get even crazier as we look at Paul's perspective. He continues on. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So situation number three, we, Paul, we see that Paul is divided over something. He's divided over these two choices. And here in this paragraph, we see him give us a little bit of internal dialogue that he's having. Do you notice what he's hard-pressed about? Verse 23, he's hard-pressed between these two options. Look at verse 21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So here's the dilemma. Here's what Paul's divided over. Do I continue living or do I die? Life or death? Kind of a, a big question to consider. So, so option number one, death. Why is this on the table? Because this is potentially startling. And let me, let me just, uh, just say, Paul is not contemplating taking his own life. What's going on here is he's in prison and he's most likely facing possible death sentences. He's, he's done that before. He's experienced that before. And so he's, he's looking at this reality that he's continuing to experience really traumatic suffering and a potential death sentence as he's in prison. And beyond his imprisonment, this man lived a life of terrible persecution, horrible hardship and oppression and abuse. Actually, in 2 Corinthians 11, you see him list some of the things that he has experienced. Uh, so just listen to, to some of the things that he had to endure as a missionary. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. There's a lot of danger, right? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, Paul went through a lot in what he was going through, in what he was called to as a missionary beaten multiple times, in and out of prison, adrift at sea. Can you imagine being lost at sea? How traumatic of an experience that would be? And so as he contemplates all the pain that he's faced and all the situations he's had to endure, all the suffering and brokenness in the world, he's, he's looking at what death brings him. And look at what he says. Verse 23, I get to be with Christ. And how he ends that, that's far better. Because for the believer, death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Suffering is over and you get to be with Jesus. Paul has that sort of confidence. And that's why he says in verse 21, to die is gain. 
So that's his his first option. So then what's under the what's under the list, you know, if he's having a pros and cons list? What about life? What is the what what comes with that option? Look at verse 22. He says, if I am going to remain, that means fruitful labor for me. So if he's sticking around, he's not planning his 401k. He's not planning retirement. He's not looking to, to take it easy. He says, fruitful labor. If I'm going to stick around, I'm here to work. And what sort of work is he committing himself to? Verse 24, it's going to be more necessary on your account. So the, the church's account. He says, convinced of this, I know I'm going to remain and continue in, with you all. For what reason? For your progress and joy in the faith. So, so think about this. Paul is saying, I have been through such horrible suffering that as I contemplate receiving a death sentence, that's okay because I get to be with Jesus. But if I'm going to stick around, I am laying my life down for your sake. I'm devoting my life to you guys. I'm here for you. Can you imagine being the Philippian church? And hearing this person saying, my life's purpose is to help you know Jesus more. Like, uh, it reminds me of, of my mom. Because uh, my mom worked multiple part-time jobs to help my brothers and I uh, do what we wanted to do. In terms of, like, the activities that we were passionate about, the things that we enjoyed. Uh, to, to not just have, us, it, have the necessities in life, but to go above and beyond. And I consider that a huge privilege because I know that that's not everyone's experience. She has devoted her life to her sons. Paul doesn't have the mom card, <laughs> but he's saying, my life is devoted to you guys. Imagine what that was like to be the Philippian church, to hear that from this guy who's been through it all and saying, you're why I'm here. And so let's, let's just summarize his, his, his dilemma here, what he's divided on. Dying is preferable because his suffering is over and he gets to be with Jesus. Living means harder work, but it's more necessary for the sake of other people. And he chooses that option. He says, I'm going to give my life for you guys. And the result is, look at verse 20. Whether in death or in life, Christ will be honored. That's his hope and his desire. And here, so we see the principle once again. Though it causes more difficulty, giving people more of Jesus brings about more joy as God gets more glory. We see that in all three of these situations in Paul's life. And just to, to, to bring this principle down to earth a little bit, um, you know, when I was a, a senior in college, I was going into my last year, I, I grew up playing lacrosse, I went to college to play lacrosse, and I had a similar... Uh, difficult decision to make going into my senior year. I knew I was going into full-time ministry after I graduated, um, but I, there was tension between the opportunities I was getting to serve and do ministry already on campus and, and in my church versus continuing to play lacrosse. Uh, and so I felt pulled in these two directions. I felt divided in a similar way. To make it worse, um, I knew that the only reason I played lacrosse was for my own reputation. Like, I loved being the man. I loved being the center of attention. Uh, I loved, you know, just kind of the, the way it made me feel. I was an arrogant Laxboro from Jersey. Uh, and so, so I, I was divided over this decision, and I realized that 
uh, for me, for that particular situation, what made more sense was to give my life to fruitful labor outside of lacrosse. And so I gave up lacrosse my senior year. And I remember um, getting lunch with my lacrosse coach. He wasn't a Christian. And so him and I are, are eating lunch on his back porch. And I explained to him, tr- I tried to explain to him my, my decision and, and my internal process. And he looks at me straight in the eye and he said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And moving forward from that, I learned through my friends who are still on the team that he started to drag my name through the mud in, you know, even in the middle of halftime games or, you know, Watkins, you know, if he were around, blah, 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 and, and at practices. And, and the awards that I got the previous season that got sent to his office, he threw in the trash. So over and over and over again, uh, you know, just feeling the weight of that pain and that gossip and that betrayal. But I will tell you with 100% certainty and confidence that I never regretted my decision. Never once. Because the opportunities that I got, even with the guys on the team still, though I wasn't on the team, and outside of uh, lacrosse, on campus, and in the community, the opportunities I got to serve other people for the sake of Jesus was far worth the sacrifice. Not even a, not even a chance. I would make that decision again. And the cool thing is a, a friend of mine had a similar decision with basketball, and he decided to go the other way. And he said, you know, I, I'm going to do ministry on my basketball team. And he experienced a very similar thing where he changed his mindset and how he was gonna approach what he was currently doing. And I saw him impact his team in ways that I couldn't have even imagined because he, he made a similar decision to say, you know, it's worth the cost. And I say all that just to let you know that, you know, for Paul being in prison, facing a death sentence, like that seems kind of unrealistic. Like I don't think Many of you guys are in danger of being in that position, you know, tonight or tomorrow. But you do have real daily decisions to make of what your life is going to be about right here on this campus. And it's this, it's this principle that it will cause more difficulty, but it will bring more joy. To bring people, to bring more of Jesus to people, and God is going to get glory through that. And so as we see this in, in Paul's life, he's, gonna, he's now about to turn the corner to you and me. Look at, look at uh, situation number four. This is how we're going to close our time. He now turns to the Philippians, and he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel, and not framed in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. See, what Paul's doing here, he's, he's letting the Philippians know that this sort of mindset of facing difficulty for the sake of the gospel is not just for missionaries and pastors. It is for everyday Christians. I mean, look at what he says in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He talks about striving side by side in community. For what purpose? Verse 29, not only believing in him, but suffering for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I have. 
So, so the Philippians and Paul, they are involved in the same mission, the same conflict to bring the gospel to other people. And so uh, this mantra that I've written up at the top of that outline, that's not just a mantra for Paul's life. That is to be an anthem for your life as well. That is uh, the banner that gets put on top of your story if you're in Christ. And so I would encourage you uh, to, if you want to, cut that little square out and put it somewhere in your room or in your Bible or somewhere that you can remember. Now, if that's too wordy, which is kind of wordy, like I'm even stumbling through it and I'm the one who wrote it. Verse 27, you can just take these five words, live worthy of the gospel. If that's too wordy, take verse 21, to live is Christ. These are the the mantras and the anthems of those who follow Jesus. This is your calling if you're in Christ. And here's, here's the reality. If that's true, that means that the blueprint for your life has already been written. The blueprint for your life has already been established. Like when my wife and I moved into the house that we live in, uh, well, before we moved in, we, we did a walkthrough and the, the guys were renovating it. It's a, it's a city home that was built in the 1800s. And they completely renovated it, shifted things around, modernized everything. And we didn't have to do any work. We just had to like pick paint colors and then furnish it afterwards. And as we were walking through, like they had already done all the substantial changes that you had to make. Like, you know, we got a new HVAC system, all the, all the stuff that you guys don't really care about right now. But in about five years, you're going to love heat and, and air conditioning and plumbing. Oh, man, new plumbing. 1800s didn't have great plumbing. But we didn't have to make any of those decisions. What we had to do is pick a paint color pick a couch, you know, pick a microwave, things like that. Because the blueprint, the structure, the foundation of our house was already built and already decided on. Everything on top was just personal choice and creativity. And the same is true for you if you're a Christian. The blueprint of your life has already been written. You live to know Christ and make him known. That is your purpose. So in other words, if you're here in college, you are not here to, uh, you're not starting from scratch. Like you're not figuring it out from, from base level. The foundation is there. The blueprint has been written. You live for Christ to make him known. What your job is, is personalizing that mission and figuring out how are you wired and gifted in order to make Jesus known on this campus and in your life. And so what it, what it comes down to is, you know, some of you might go into PT, like 90% of you are going to go into PT. <laughs> some of you guys are going to be doctors, teachers, accountants. Some of you will go into full-time ministry. But no matter your career choice, the foundation for everyone in this room who's a Christian is the same. Knowing Jesus, making him known, living for Christ, giving people more of Jesus. And as you, as you imagine that and as you, you start to make choices and you're divided over decisions and you step out in faith and courage, I want you to know and to remember that this is going to lead to more difficulty. This is not a fast food Jesus, but it will lead to more joy for you and for those around you. And it will give God more glory. And so embrace the difficulties. Get ready for the difficulties and embrace them when you face it because it's worth it.
You know, this time last year, I was embracing a difficulty that I usually hate. Running. I hate running for the sake of running. Natick, I'm sorry. <laughs> but man, give me a lacrosse stick, a basketball, a football. I will run all day. But just running to run, I hate it. Cardio, ugh. Ugh, I hate it. Give me a Big Mac, you know? <laughs> but this time last year, I was running harder than I had ever run before. Running every single day and pushing myself beyond a point that I ever thought possible. I was running in single-digit dig weather before the sun came up, literally ice on my face, running through snow and ice, slipping on sidewalks, almost getting run over by cars in the city, day after day for months. And here's the reason why. I wasn't running for myself. I was running on behalf of my son. Many of you guys know that we lost our son, Eli, a year and a half ago. And every year, the, the organization that helped us pay for our funeral costs, has, they have a fundraising 5K. And so as we anticipated the first annual or the first time that we were doing that 5K on behalf of Eli, I was like, I'm going to win this dang thing for my son, you know? The, got the competitive nature, but also I knew it would be healthy for my grief and healing. And so every day, you know, I'm running in the dark, you know, just, just trudging through snow and ice, ice on my face. Uh, and, and I don't say this to brag for me. I say this because I'm proud of what I did for my son. I went from running an 830 mile to a 630 mile. And I almost won the race, but there's a guy who did cross country and ran it in 530. But I came in second place. <laughs> and first place in my age group. Yeah, which, which shameless plug, for those of you who have seen people who have the Eli's Warrior shirts with the sweet helmet and banner, we, we raised funds for the race and that, that was our team uniform. We were Eli's Warriors, which we're selling more in a couple months. So new colors coming out, shameless plug. But here's what I'm saying, man, it was so worth it for, for my son, for my family to embrace that difficulty and the pain. I'll tell you, it sucked. <laughs> but it was so worth it on behalf of my son. The difficulty was worth it. How much more so when it comes to the God of the universe who laid down his life for you? How much more worth it to embrace the difficulty for those who are around you thirsting for life and for joy, but going to all the wrong places? The difficulty is so worth it. So yeah, it will cause more difficulty, but it will bring about more joy as you give people more of Jesus and God will get more glory. So let's end on this question. What is fruitful labor for the sake of the gospel going to look like for you? What decisions do you have to make? What sort of difficulties do you have to embrace? It's going to be painful, but it will be worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for all of these students who are in this room. I know that some students are, are coming from a place of confusion and doubt and uncertainty, even wrestling with whether or not you actually exist, whether or not you can be trusted. And so a lot of this, I would imagine, is foreign and, and, and even further confusing potentially. So I pray that you would, would meet those people in a in a new and unique way in a way that they need. For those of us 
though, who, who are confident in who you are and what you've done for us. Pray that you would empower us and give us the courage and the boldness and the endurance to run joyfully, even though the pain sucks at times. To uh, have those conversations that feel awkward, even though our name might be dragged through the mud. That the, the things that we have to give up, some of the things that have been weighing on our minds is whether or not we should continue, that we would be able to say no freely and that we would feel the weight lifted so that we could run harder as we serve you and make you known on this campus. I pray that there would be um, something big, a, a big movement through this community on this campus, but, but even more so as these students graduate, that there would be a ripple through the communities that they live in for the sake of the gospel. And that whether it's at the end of this semester, at the end of their college career, but definitely at the end of their life, that they could look back and say the same thing that Paul says, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. God, would you give us your spirit for boldness and for endurance? And will we strive side by side for the sake of Christ, for the joy of others? In your son's name we pray. Amen.